all carried sandbags in our car because you put down two or three sticks of dynamite, you put two sandbags against it. That blows it inward, not outward. That's Joe Franco in an interview from 1993. He was a teamster who worked closely with Jimmy Hoffa for over 30 years. Bombing the establishments of employers reluctant to deal with the Teamsters was one of Franco's specialties. He says there were certain things Hoffa would never ask his agents to do. For those things, he would turn to the Mafia. I would say that uh, 95% of it was in-house, but the bad stuff was about 5% out of the house. Putting somebody in the hospital, that was in-house. Uh, blowing up a truck, that's not going to hurt nobody. That was in-house. That's all in-house. That's all labor. Uh, but the other stuff that uh, would be considered heavy duty, then he would go outside and buy it. Bad, he, bad, he, the bad stuff. Bad stuff. What's real, bad real stuff? bad. We're killing somebody. From WDIV in Detroit and Graham Media, my name is Steve Garagiola. You're listening to Shattered Season 4, Hoffa. Episode 2, Mobbed Up. La Cosa Nostra, that's Italian for our thing, or this thing of ours. It's how members of the Italian mafia sometimes refer to themselves. The roots of La Cosa Nostra stretch back to 19th century Sicily. Its members began immigrating to the United States and Canada over 100 years ago. And yes, La Cosa Nostra still exists today. Nowhere near the force that they were in the 50s and 60s and 70s. But uh, they exist in the shadows. They thrive um, in the background like they always have. Journalist Scott Bernstein. They're very immersed in white-collar society. They own a lot of legitimate businesses. They still control most of the illegal gambling. Uh, they still extort and shake down people in their community, mostly Italian business owners and whatnot. Um, they have a role in uh, wholesale narcotics trafficking. Bernstein says the Detroit Mafia families still active today are some of the same families Jimmy Hoffa worked with throughout his career and who may have had something to do with his disappearance. Families like the Tocos, Zarellis, and the Giacalonis. You can trace their involvement in the mob back to pre-Prohibition era Detroit. Now, I'm about to give you a lot of names, and you're not going to remember all of them. But I want you to appreciate the long path carved from today back to the roots of organized crime in Detroit. Gambling, loan sharking, a little bit of bootlegging even before uh, Prohibition set in, and then prostitution. Dabble in their political corruption, naturalization scams, and you had, you know, you have a picture of what early organized crime looked like in Detroit. The first two names of note from this era are Joe Zarelli and Bill Tocco. The Tocco Zarelli group came up under the Gianola brothers, who were the mob leaders of Detroit from around 1914 to 1919. But in 1919, the first crosstown mob war erupted. The main factions were the Gianolas and a lieutenant of theirs, a guy named Giovanni Bloody John Vitale. He wanted to oust his former bosses. That war lasted about a year. At the end of the day, both Bloody John Vitale and both Gianola brothers were dead. So the Tocos and Zarellis, who were once drivers and bodyguards for the Gianola brothers, 
step up and take over the Giannola's territory on the east side. For the most part, at least for a while, the city's crime factions all got along. You had the east side gang, the west side gang, the Corktown gang, the Lizard gang, the River gang, and the Purple gang. But then comes the Crosstown Mob War of 1930. So the Crosstown Mob War split the city between the east side and the west side. The east side gang was the victors. Joe Zarelli and Black Bill Toko defeated Big Chet Lamar. They assassinated him in his mansion in Hamtramck to control the city of themselves and brought everyone under one banner. Took the entire city, all the individual bootlegging groups, and combined them into one organization, which became known as the Combination or the Partnership. And Detroit's modern-day mafia, in which Hoffa would become entangled, was born. In the mid-1930s, Jimmy Hoffa was a star recruiter for the small but growing Teamsters Union. The battles the Teamsters were engaged in with management and with rival unions sometimes turned ugly. So Hoffa turned to the mob. But it's not like they're listed in the yellow pages. Hoffa had a way in. Her name was Sylvia Pagano. She was a mafia paramour, a aspiring actress model that liked to date Italian mobsters. She was married to a, a gangster in Kansas City by the name of Sam Saracino. They called him the Binger. At some point, that relationship didn't work out, and Sylvia Bacano matriculated to Detroit and began dating uh, mob figures in Detroit. I know that she dated Frankie Three Fingers Coppola. She dated Jimmy Hoffa. She dated Tony Giacalone. And that was kind of a way that they all met. Not all investigators agree that Hoffa and Pagano had an affair, but at the very least, they knew each other very well. And Pagano was the link between Hoffa and guys like Tony Giacalone. And Giacalone is assigned to Hoffa uh, at some point in the 1940s as kind of his go-to. And Giacalone becomes his main point man and the person that is relaying messages to Hoffa from the mob and the person that Hoffa is relaying messages from the Teamsters to the mob uh, through as well. With the mafia at his back, Hoffa is able to stabilize and grow the Teamsters base. Uh, they weren't nobodies, but they weren't the somebodies that they became until they partnered up with the mob and built this kind of monolithic empire that, you know, controlled American commerce. They didn't reach that point of this global domination of, of labor union activity until they attached their trailer to organized crime. It was with that muscle behind them and that reach that allowed them to grow this thing to massive proportions under Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, Jimmy Hoffa became one of the most recognizable people in the world. In 1946, Hoffa was promoted to head up Detroit Local 299, and he made a fast climb from there. He took over the Joint Council. He took over the Michigan Conference of Teamsters. He took over the Central States Division of the Teamsters Union, and he became National Vice President of the Union in 1952 under Dave Beck, who was president at the time. By the early 1950s, Hoffa was traveling all over the country on Teamsters business, he spent a lot of time in New York, where the Teamsters hired him a personal driver, a kid from Canada named Marvin Elkind. Hey, good morning. This is Steve Gargiola in Detroit. Is this Marvin? It's Marvin. 
and uh, appreciate very much you making time to talk with us today. I appreciate being here. Thank you very much. How is it that you first got hooked up with being Jimmy Hoffa's driver? Here's what happened. I went to New York in 1952 as a young kid. I got some work done as doing some boxing. I had to help myself out. So through a contact, I got a job as a busboy at the Copacabana, which was owned by Barbara Walters' father, Lou Walters. And as I understand it, you get called over to this table for a conversation. What was that conversation? The conversation was this. Tony Salerno called me over. Tony Salerno was a mobster in the Genovese crime family. And he said, we spoke to Lou Walters. Wednesday is your last day here. I said, why? I'm trying so hard to do a good job. He says, as of Monday, you are going to be the driver for Mr. Jimmy Hoffa. I didn't know Mr. Hoffa, but I knew of his reputation. I knew he was a tough guy, and I knew he was a guy that you could be in trouble with if you got in trouble with him. I said to him, I don't want to be Mr. Hoffa's driver. His answer was, nobody's asking you. <laughs> the first time that you meet Jimmy Hoffa, I understand you pick him up at LaGuardia Airport and you say, good morning, Mr. Hoffa. What was that exchange like? I was terrified. I hid it as best I could. I saw Mr. Hoffa come out. I knew where he was coming out. I had his picture. I drove the car up to him. I opened up the door and I said, good morning, Mr. Hoffa. He said, are you Marvin? I goes, yes, sir. He said, very good answer. Remember, it's either Mr. Hoffa or sir. That's how you call me, Mr. Hoffa or sir. He says, no, get into the car. I drove the car and he said, go over there. He showed me where to drive. I drove the car to a spot. Two guys came out and they got in the back of the car. And he said, drive the car to the spot and turn the engine off. I did. He says, no, Marvin, turn around. I turned it around and both guys opened their coats to show me they were carrying guns. He says, now listen to me, Marvin. There's rules and there's cardinal rules. The rules are like this. I don't want to hear rainstorm, snowstorm, thunderstorm. I don't want to hear any of that. I must never be kept waiting. When you pick me up, you must be on time. If you're not on time, either I'll yell at you or these boys will beat you up. That's the rules. Cardinal rules is this. I expect 100% loyalty, 100% obedience, and what you hear in this car stays in this car. If that doesn't happen, you won't be around till the next morning. Do we understand each other? I goes, yes, sir, we do. For the next four years, Marvin spent countless hours driving Hoffa and his associates around New York City. Mr. Hoffa had two great passions in life. His union, which he really did love and want to do the best for, and he was a great family man. Mr. Hoffa didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't swear in front of people. Every morning that Cadillac had to be washed. 
and checked for bugs. He had a police officer that came with a machine and checked it to make sure there was no... You know what I mean by bugs. Oh, I do. You don't mean bugs on the windshield, I'm guessing. Exactly. I don't mean bugs on the windshield. After it was checked, at 7 a.m., I would pick up Mr. Hoffa, and we would start the day. There was a good reason Hoffa had Elkin check the car for bugs every morning. Hoffa had established relationships with a number of characters suspected of illegal activity. And not just in Detroit, all over the country. The FBI was watching and listening. What really set off the alarms for the feds was when they discovered Hoffa had placed the Teamsters pension fund in the hands of a guy named Alan Dorfman. He was the stepson of Paul Dorfman, a labor racketeer from Chicago's Waste Handlers Union. With no insurance experience at all, Alan Dorfman created the Union Casualty Insurance Company and got the contract from the Teamsters. My view of the way this worked, and you know, nobody leaves a written record. That's David Whitworth. He's a labor historian. But when Hoff was coming up, he needs the support of Teamsters in various centers of the Teamsters Union power. So that would be New York, and that would be Chicago. And to the extent that a fair proportion of the Teamster leaders in Chicago are associated with organized crime or dominated by organized crime, depending on how you want to phrase it, then he needs to, he needs to have the support of the outfit. And the way to get the support of the outfit is to, get, uh, is to provide Paul Dorfman's stepson with ties to the, you know, to the Teamsters pension fund and then ties to the Teamsters benefit funds too. The pension fund accumulated $10 million in its first year of operation. It was the largest private pension fund in the country in the 1950s. And so with the approval of Jimmy Hoffa, Alan Dorfman began making loans to mob-connected individuals with no collateral, loans at low or no interest. The entire Las Vegas skyline was built on pension fund loans given out by the Teamsters Central States Pension Fund. And it was a piggy it was a mob piggy bank. From what I could gather from my research, it was a pretty easy process. They would say we want this loan and they would get that loan. It wouldn't there would be no vetting process. Um, so you know in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, all of the 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 casinos in Vegas belonged to one mob family or the other. So Detroit had the frontier, then the Detroit had the Aladdin, Kansas City had the Tropicana, Chicago had the Stardust, Cleveland had the Desert Inn. Essentially, Hoffa traded money for power. By 1963, 60% of the Teamsters pension fund was invested in risky real estate ventures. And it would be a quid pro quo, where Hoffa would provide them access to the pension fund, and through the pension fund they could take out loans, as well as get jobs through the Teamsters Union, be put into leadership posts, put into posts where you are able to bid rig, where you're able to create slush funds, where you're able to, to, to shake down other members of the union. Former assistant U.S. attorney Keith Corbett describes our classic mob shakedown. If you're a small trucking company and uh, you get approached by somebody who says, we'd like to unionize your trucking company, and you say, boy, that's going to cost me X number of dollars. And then somebody says, well, if you hire this labor relations management company, which may have some ties to organized crime, they may be able to keep you from getting unionized. So you call up the labor union 
management company and they say, well, you know, if you pay us $10,000 a month, you're not going to have any problems with the union. And you compute that it's going to cost you $20,000 a month to be unionized or $10,000 to pay off the uh, labor management consulting firm. Well, who do you hire? You hire them and through their connections, they make sure the union effort goes away. There were always rumors about Hoffa's connection with the mob and these multi-million dollar loans, but he remained a hero to the rank and file. He created health and welfare, pension programs, better job conditions, more money for people who never had it before. He brought up wages by more than 50% in less than a decade. Not long after Hoffa put the Union Casualty Insurance Agency and his friend Alan Dorfman in charge of the pension fund, a congressman from Michigan, a guy named Claire Hoffman, started sniffing around the Teamsters. Hoffman, along with a Kansas Republican, Wint Smith, formed a House subcommittee. They wanted to look at the Teamsters Health and Welfare Fund. While testifying, Allen and his stepdad, Paul Dorfman, invoked their Fifth Amendment right over 100 times. During testimony, Wint Smith abruptly gets up. He leaves the hearing room to go take a long-distance phone call. When he comes back, Smith announces the committee investigation is over. When asked why, Smith points to the ceiling and says, the pressure comes from a way up there, and I just can't talk about it more specifically than that. Hoffa's people hired as an attorney, like the basically the Republican Party leader of, uh, of Kansas. Like they, they made a deal with someone who was politically powerful there, not a bribe per se, but suddenly he was their attorney. And then the notion is that guy contacted Wint Smith and said, now it's time to stop the hearings. Jimmy Hoffa had eluded government investigators, but he was mad. He suspected that somebody inside the Detroit Teamster headquarters had been informing on him. So he reached out to a guy who knew all about wiretaps, John Diaguardi. He is better known as Johnny Dio, one of the most notorious mobsters in New York City. Now, back in the 1930s, Dio did some time at Sing Sing for extorting trucking companies. When he got out, he got into the garment industry as a union officer. That's how he got to know Jimmy Hoffa. Dio hooked Hoffa up with somebody who would bug the phones of Hoffa's staff. That way he could keep closer tabs on him. Now, I grew up in New York. I never met Johnny Dio. But I came to find out that he and his family actually lived in our neighborhood when I was a kid. I went to school with one of his sons. I never thought much about the Diaguardis, but I got to admit, I did often wonder about the six or eight black limousines parked in front of their house once a month. I thought they just had fancy parties. I never asked. I found out some years later who the head of that family was. Johnny Dio. So notorious in the 1950s, a character in a famous movie is based on him. Hey, kid, here's half a bill. Go get your load on. No, I'm going to keep telling things. Present from your Uncle Johnny. On the Waterfront is a classic, starring Marlon Brando as a morally conflicted dock worker. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. The evil union boss, Johnny Friendly, is based on Johnny Dio. You come from Greenpoint, go back to Greenpoint. You don't work here no more. On the Waterfront is a great movie. But Johnny Dio's real life was even more nefarious than Hollywood could depict. In 1955, 
Hoffa helped bring a number of New York-based Teamster locals into the union, and those locals were chartered by Johnny Dio. These were shady outfits, known as paper locals. Typically, there were no actual workers, just friends, family, and often criminal associates of Dio. Paper locals were often used for extortion, fraud, bribes, or to keep a real union locked out of a business. In the case of the Dio locals, they were also allegedly used to swing votes in a critical Teamster election toward a union rep who backed Jimmy Hoffa. Hoffa's ties to Dio attracted a lot of unwanted attention, especially after what happened to a labor journalist late one night in the spring of 1956. And he says, I was attacked because of the racketeers, because of my crusading efforts, and, uh, and they won't stop me. You know, they can, they can blind me, but I can still go after them with my typewriter. That attack, which we'll get into in the next episode, galvanized the Senate and a young, hungry Bobby Kennedy to go after Hoffa and the Teamsters in a big way. Did Jimmy Hoffa ever talk about uh, the Kennedys, talk about Bobby Kennedy? He spoke about Bobby Kennedy all the time with great hate. He thought he came from a very bad family, that he was raised where everything he thought was right, and it went way beyond politics. Coming up in the next episode of Shattered, the Kennedy Hoffa Blood Feud. I say you're not tough enough to get rid of these people, man. Well, I don't propose. You have moved against any of them. I don't propose to act tough, and I will follow the Constitution of the International Union. Shattered is produced and edited by Jeremy Allen and Zach Rosen. To help support this show, which took us months and months to make, become a member of Shattered Plus. It's just $3.99 a month or $25 for the year. How are you going to beat that? Go to our website, shatteredpodcast.com. Click on the Shattered Plus link. You'll get access to bonus interviews, like the one we did this week with Marvin the Weasel Elkind. The story Marvin tells about being threatened by gangster Meyer Lansky is worth the price of admission by itself. In the Jewish language, there's a saying called Kaddish. It's saying for the departed. He says, if you don't get knocked out in the first four, have somebody say Kaddish for you. By becoming a Shattered Plus member, you also get access to this season's episodes without ads. Thanks. We'll talk to you next time.